Um, there are, the, I, or, oh, well, we're going to cut that out. Okay. Welcome back to the Admissions Uncovered podcast. I'm Michael Gao, the incoming college freshman, and I'm joined by incoming high school seniors, me and Dominic. Today, we'll be talking about a strategy to approach tests, the ACT and the SAT. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, audible.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash AUPod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, if you still have one of those. You know, when I was still in high school, I had an hour-long commute on public transit every single day. Audible was there to help me keep my sanity. Now, Audible likes for us to give a book recommendation. This week, I'm suggesting Brian Kaplan's The Case Against Education, why the education system is a waste of time and money. He argues that much of our K-12 and higher education coursework in literature, music, sociology, and other subjects classified as liberal arts don't give students any real applicable skills. I don't agree. But Kaplan makes a compelling case that maybe at least think about why I like school and why I'm about to spend thousands of dollars on a college education. Now, if you want to listen to Kaplan's book or any of the other titles Audible has to offer, go to audibletrial.com slash AUPod. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial membership. To download your audiobook today for free and to support your podcast hosts, go to audibletrial.com slash AUPod. With that, let's get on to the show. So the first thing we wanted to talk about is the ACT, the SAT, and which schools require it. Now, some schools require different combinations, like the ACT alone, and some schools require the SAT and two subject tests. So it all depends on your school. But there's a very interesting example that recently made themselves test optional. UChicago, one of the best schools in the country, recently made themselves test optional, and now we're going to talk about it. So what do you guys think about it? Uh, so personally, I think that although they're test optional, it's still optional. And anything in the college application process that's optional, including any supplements, you should do it or else you're just hurting your chances. So I would believe that you're going to hurt yourself if you don't submit it, unless your test score is absolutely terrible. And then I would say rethink um, your application. Just because the, I believe the test score is a pretty good reflection on the academic ability of the students uh, across the nation. And standardized tests anymore are the only good way to kind of measure the academic ability and commitment of all applicants. Because there's just such a big difference in GPA across the nation. There's different grades at different schools and so many factors that contribute to it. There's a good avenue for schools to judge academic ability through standardized testing because everybody takes the same test. Well, I think I would have to disagree with that. I actually really like the idea of um, Chicago's idea of making it test optional because the SAT and ACT, most of it is really about like test taking strategies and how like how well prepared you are for it. And also it's you take the test like for just one day for four hours. So maybe like you're having an off day that day or you haven't had as much time to prep as other people. So it isn't really an accurate measure of how you do academically. I think it would be a lot better if you looked at AP scores or your grades in the courses that you take at school because those are throughout your entire high school years. So it's a much better measurement. And then also the other thing is that a lot of people have been prepping for SAT and ACT, maybe like even from middle school or from ninth grade because they have the money and resources to do that while other kids 
don't have that opportunity. So I think it puts them at a disadvantage due to their financial circumstances, which is already not fair because there's already a lot of inequality within the, like, the college admissions process. All right, so what if they're not able to take these AP tests? Then you could look at their um, transcript and the classes that they take at school because that's a much better measure because you have a lot of okay. assignments and then it's also throughout the year. So And it's a lot more content-based, so I think it's a lot better than the ACT and SAT, which is a lot about test-taking strategies. Mm-hmm. And then what about different grade inflation? Because you know at our school, like it's going to be completely different from a home school. So if you do it just based off of GPA, I think there would be a large difference. Well, when you talk to admissions officers about the notion of grade inflation, they say that they have a pretty good idea of the schools in their regions because these are regional admissions officers who have read applications from the same schools from for years now, for decades now. And of course, schools have files about each school. So yeah. if your school has a very hard calculus teacher and people applying from your school have poor calculus grades for the past five years, colleges are going to know that and are going to have the capacity to take that into account. And you can also mention that in your additional information section on the Common App to kind of smooth things over. But I think Nee is absolutely correct that testing is just exacerbates racialized and income-based inequality in the college application process. There are study after study that shows that people who are richer and people who are whiter and people who are of more affluent backgrounds get higher scores than people who are minority or are people who are low income. And it makes sense because as one of those kids in an upper middle class family who went to these test prep courses, I've had exposure to these types of tests since middle school. And of course that exposure makes better. And so I think Nee's right that the alternative of AP tests are better. And the reason why is not that it's easier for people to take the AP test than the SAT test, because fee waivers have made that issue a non-starter. But what matters, though, is the training for those tests. And low-income kids have public school for that. And you're right, the education might not be as good as a private school, but there is still some training, some avenue of preparation for that test, whereas there's no such public equivalent of a private test prep course. So what if a poor kid at a poor school, like for example, the school didn't offer as many AP classes because they just couldn't afford it? So Mm -hmm. how would, because I think that would make a greater economic difference in the testing ability of kids, because not only are Let's say there's a difference in how they can perform, but they might not be able to take the test at all when you're looking at APs as opposed to the SAT. Um, so the way APs work is that if you want to take an AP test that is not actually offered by your school, you can still take it. Um, there are alternative testing sites, and your fee waiver still covers that AP test. Yeah, but if you're not able to have the class for it, I mean, so trying to self-study it uh, for a low-income kid at a school who doesn't offer the class, I mean, they're obviously going to score probably worse than a kid who was able to sit in a class the entire year and learn the information from a teacher who has been trained to teach the things on the test. But you just made our case against the SAT and the ACT. There are kids who have, for years, been trained for the SAT and the ACT. And you're right, there are some kids who won't have that access to AP tests. But the degree to which people have access to AP tests and the degree to which people have access to ACT and SAT private tutors are very clear. Like, AP classes are more accessible. Content-based classes are more accessible because at least... It's just fundamental that all schools, at least in the state of Texas, have to offer things like U.S. history and world history. They have to teach, you know, basic math, which can help the student segue into calculus-based math. But 
there's no such equivalent. There's no such grounding for these SAT and ACT tests. The only option is these types of private test centers. All right. So as you can see, uh, we kind of had a little debate over this. So let us know what you think about this down in the comments below. Um, and then we'll make sure to answer it back. So we'll see kind of what our viewers think. Um, so anyway, now we're going to kind of talk about the differences between the two tests. So although they are standardized tests for college entrance, the two tests are very different, uh, created by two different companies, and they have different sections and measure different things. So, uh, Need, you want to talk about the differences between the tests? Yeah, so when I first think of SAT versus ACT, I always think of the reading por the reading portion. I think on the SAT, the reading portion is a lot harder, the questions are trickier, and usually you they're not as straightforward as the ACT, whereas the math on the SAT is easier compared to the ACT, which requires, still covers the same fundamentals of algebra, but there's a lot more pre-cal, and you have to be able to compi combine a lot more concepts on the ACT math portion than on the SAT math portion, in my opinion. Yeah. And also part of this trade-off, the ACT is going to have more questions, so you're going to have to work at a faster pace than you would on the uh, SAT, but so the the reading questions will be easier, Yeah, in our opinion. That's why they're a lot more straightforward, because in the reading portion, I think you have to do 75 questions in 45 minutes, whereas on the SAT... Um, it's like 65 in an hour or something. Yeah, so your pacing, you have to be really careful about your pacing on the ACT, which is another big thing, because you have a lot more questions in a less amount of time, but the trade-off is that they're a lot more straightforward. So it just depends on exactly. which one is better for you and your skills. Um, as far as essays, though, they're also um, a difference. Now, essays aren't as important as the other parts of it because some schools don't even require the essay and um, some of them don't weight it that heavily. But there is still a difference there where the ACT is a persuasive essay where you argue your own perspective, whereas the SAT essay is a rhetorical analysis essay, like your AP language essay would be. And then also one other big difference is the ACT has an extra section, which is the science section. So um, it's actually split into four sections. So when we're talking about the reading portion of the ACT, uh, there's, there's kind of like two reading portions which are similar to the reading and writing portions on the SAT. But the ACT has an extra science portion, which is sometimes why schools don't require you to take SAT subject tests because your science portion in the ACT can sometimes make up for um, not having an SAT subject test. Definitely. And so a lot of people get scared away by the thought of science. Like they say they're bad in their like biology class. And to be honest, that's not really reflective of the ACT science test because the ACT science test is basically readings about science and your ability to interpret graphs. Yep. It's like that science passage on the SAT, pretty exactly. much. Exactly. But the tricky thing about it is also the timing part because you have a lot of graphs, a lot of information, and sometimes you might think it's tricky because like, yeah, you think you suck at science or something like that. So that might be um, a hard part of it. So now we're going to talk about how you can prepare for this. So you're either going to have a couple options here. You can decide to prepare on your own or not prepare at all, which we do not advise. But there are a multitude of books out there, which me is going to talk about later in, re in review materials. But in the new age, you have the online prep materials. So you have free versions like Khan Academy, which has eight practice tests plus a lot of different lessons for you. Uh, those practice tests are also the same ones in the SAT Blue Book. 
And then they're also downloadable online off of College Board's website so that you can get those as well. Um, and then there's also online paid subscriptions. So these are a lot cheaper than in person, but they do provide some pretty good value. You're definitely going to get out what you put in because there's no accountability there except for what you plan. So personally, I did an online prep course called Prep Scholar, and I thought that it was a great course for the money. Um, I wasn't going to pay a couple thousand dollars for an in-person prep course, so I thought that this was a good couple hundred dollar investment for prep course for a prep course. Um, it had very good lessons. There's video lessons and also reading passages where you can read the lessons instead. They have a lot of practice questions and then practice SATs as well. And it's very personal, so I found that the customer support was really amazing. And uh, they were always checking on me and making sure that I was staying on task with my prep. And then you also have in-person options, so private tutors and also things like KD Prep. So I know a couple people that have done it, including Michael. And I'm sure he'll <laughs> talk on it in a minute uh, after I wrap this up. But again, with this, it is expensive, but it does provide a lot. From what I've seen, uh, the best scores that I've seen kids get on the SAT, they are from kids that have done KD. But I've also seen kids go through that program and pay the money and they haven't done as well. So from what I've seen as a person who hasn't done it, I think that it's also you get out what you put in. But Michael, do you want to talk on that? Yeah, my problem with programs like KD is that they are by their very own nature not personalizable. You are in a class of 20 other kids, sometimes 30 other kids. There's no way to find your own individual strategy, and there's not a teacher there to help you find your own individual strategy because the teacher is teaching the group the KD strategy the KD method. And so that's why I don't think these things are worth it. And I, and I think it might even better for you to be studying yourself because you can find your own strengths and weaknesses and for you for yourself to create strategies for you that are personalized to you. Now, I do private SAT and ACT tutoring at GAO admissions. Um, and I think the strength of that individual tutoring is the personal nature. I think another strength of what I do is that it's an hourly rate versus KD and Prep Scholar and the other options that are the package rate. And to spell it out for you, the reason why people do package rates is because they get the money either upfront or really quickly in the first year of the test prep. And there's not really an assurance that they will maintain their product or that um, when you keep going, the quality will still be there. Whereas for the hourly rate, it's totally flexible and it's totally giving the power back to the consumer. The consumer gets to choose whether the classes are working for them or not. Whereas with the package rate, you have to pay up front and then see if they work for you. For the hourly rate, you're able to choose when you're done or not. You get to choose when your score is high enough or you know enough strategies to ace the test. So that's why I think it's always better to have more flexibility in your test prep. Yep, I definitely agree. All right, so moving on to the review materials in person. So let's say you want to prepare on your own. Uh, I did this at the beginning of my prep, and then after taking the test the first time, I had a score that I was kind of happy with, but then I kind of wanted to take it to the next level, and that's when I got the Prep Scholar program. But in order to prepare for the first time, personally, I believe that the best review sources are made by the actual test makers. So, for example, the SAT Blue Book or the ACT uh, book that they make as well, um, these come with either past or previously administered tests or tests that are made by the people who make the test. And I've seen this true in my SAT2 subject test prep as well. Um, I had a friend who was practicing with a Barron's book, and I was going through one of the previously administered tests that I got in the College Board book, and we were just seeing how big of a difference it was between the two tests. Because although Barron's is trying to prepare you as best they can, 
they don't have actual test material. And we kind of found that the questions were very far off from what the actual test was asking. So it's great to prepare at a higher level, but if you're not learning what you need to learn for the test, you're not going to do as well as somebody who has the actual material. So that's why I think a great starting point for this stuff is to get previously administered tests and to take those. Yeah. And then also on the SAT or ACT websites, they'll have some sample questions. Even though they're only like 20 or something questions, they can still give you kind of a starting point of what type of questions that are going to be on the test. So you have a better understanding and then you'll know how, you'll know how to study for it better. Yeah. And if you look in the show notes down below, we'll put in some of these online resources that we mentioned and also some links to PDFs of some sample tests for you guys to take a look at. And then also I know Dominic mentioned Barron's. So the three main prep books that people usually get are either Kaplan, Princeton Review, or Barron's. And I personally would say Barron's, as he mentioned, is the hardest out of the three. Their questions are much more complicated. And it's really good if you want to aim for like a perfect score or something like that. But sometimes their questions are hard that they're kind of off topic, like they aren't true to what the test is going to be. And then most people say Princeton Review is the most like the test. I personally haven't used Princeton Review a lot, so I can't really speak on that. And then Kaplan, they say, is usually the easiest. Their questions, if you want to aim for a high, a higher score, you should use something like Princeton Review or Barron's. Yep. And everything mentioned is our personal opinion, just to put that out there. True. <laughs> and then also besides the books, you can also use online sources such as Crack SAT or Crack ACT, which uh, Michael actually introduced me to. And they're actually really good because they have a bunch of practice problems and they're split into many sections. So like the reading section will have a lot of questions there. So you can kind of work on which sections that you're weak at because they have a lot of questions that you can use. So it's really good. All right. So now we'll move on to how many times you should, you should take the test. So now we've kind of talked about the differences between the tests and then the prep classes. So let's say you take it the first time and then you're not completely satisfied with your score. Uh, should you take it again? And then after that test, how many other times should you take it? So from what I've gathered, a lot of websites say you should take it a minimum of two times. Of course, unless your first time you get like an amazingly high score. But most people say a minimum of two times and three times is usually the best option. Four can get a little excessive, but um, it really depends. If you think you're going to do much better the next time, maybe you should probably take the risk and take it one more time because colleges will see your improvement throughout the test and they really won't judge you for taking it a lot of times. Of course, like you should, you don't want to take it maybe six or seven times. That might come off as a little too excessive. But other than that, three or four times is okay. And it'll definitely come off as excessive if you are applying to a non-score choice school like Georgetown, for example. Um, a score choice means you get to choose which sco scores you send to the school. So a non-score choice school means you have to send all your scores to them, which means the school will see that you have taken the test seven times and that your beginning <laughs> score was a 900 and you only ended up at an 1100, which is not that great of an improvement, for example. So if you have a non-score choice school, you should be very, very careful. Now, if you are just going to apply to score choice schools. Honestly, I think you should take it as many times as you want. Um, I know, you know, Nee says that a lot of the, the blogs and stuff say three times only. We did some research before this show on Google Scholar to see if there's a peer-reviewed study or just like some type of statistical analysis, but there seemed to be none to support what the blogs and stuff were saying. Um, so if you can find that study, please send it over because I'm actually kind of interested in 
um, the method and how they got to their conclusions. But I honestly think that's just a um, college confidential myth at this point. But also taking it, you don't want to take it too many times because it also takes time and money to take all these tests. And when you think you have a decent enough score, maybe you should use that time to focus on maybe doing extracurricular or adding something to your um, college application because the standardized test is only it's although it's um, an important part of your application it is for sure not your entire application so you shouldn't worry about taking it way too many times if you're only going to prove a few points each time yeah testing is not an extracurricular activity you should not put test prep on the activity section of your common app that would be very (laughs) very bad (laughs) yep all right, so let's say you took the either the SAT or ACT at school or during the school year. Uh, do you think it'd be wise to take the other option and why? Well, one of the students that I help with test prep has actually already taken both initially to kind of get a sense of which one they like the best. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely one way to do it is just to like take it up front without studying and see which one you like better so that you can focus on one. But what do you guys think? Because I know you guys have or either have taken both or are going to take both. Yep. Uh, I've already taken the SAT a few times, three times uh, to be exact. And then I'm also signed up to take the ACT in July. So I should be preparing for that, uh, which I'm procrastinating, but I will get on top of that. <laughs> and then also I'm taking it at the beginning of the school year uh, in, I think, early October at school when it's offered. So I'll be taking the ACT two times, and then from there I'll make my decision on which one to send in. Yeah, so I think you definitely should take both at least once, like Michael mentioned, so you can see which one you like better, which one um, you'll do better on, because you never know until you actually take the test. And as we mentioned before, they do have some differences, so you want to take both to see which one is better for you. Yep, so now that we've you know, let's say a kid has taken both. Uh, Michael, I know you did this in your applications, I believe. So do you want to kind of talk about uh, which one you should submit and if you should submit both or just one? Yeah, so I got a 36 on the ACT, a 1550 on the SAT, and um, some, you know, average to pretty good scores on the SAT subject test. And, you know, the first glance at it says that you should send your 36 on the ACT and like your 800 on biology SAT too. I honestly just sent them all because in my opinion, it's just better to be transparent because when you select the best score you do on the SAT, um, it's going to say score choice. It's going to tell the college that this is not a complete report. And so the college is going to look like that, look at that and say, you know, what are they hiding? And so the worst thing you can show to your college is that you've improved, that you initially got a bad score and that you improved, or that you initially got a really high score and that when you took it again, it fell a little bit. But based on all the reports I get back from an admissions officer, they're going to use the best scores. And if that's true, you might as well send it so you don't raise suspicions among the admissions officers. So you're saying to send all of your scores? Yes. So like every single SAT you've taken? Every single SAT. Unless you've taken like seven. (laughs) Yeah, if you've taken seven, then you've already done something wrong. (laughs) Okay, what if you do really well on the ACT and decent on the SAT, but of course not as like on the upper end? So should you still send in that SAT? The reason why I said what I did is because I had subject tests I was going to send. So there was going to be a college board score report anyways. But in the situation you raised where there's the good ACT and the middling SAT and no subject test, 
I think it's totally fine just to send the ACT. What if you still have subject tests? Then I would just do what I did and just send everything to be transparent okay. because they will use the best score out of the two or out of the number of tests that you So take. they'll still look at your ACT? Definitely, definitely. Like a 36 on the ACT is not going to go away because you made like a 1400 on the SAT. You still made a 36 on the ACT and that still is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sort of segueing into our next point, uh, this is part of the hidden cost of college applications. So not only do you have your application fee, but you also have these score report fees. So it's going to be uh, $12 for an SAT score report and then $13 per test per report. These really do add up, especially if you're applying to, you know, 10 to 15 schools. So just make sure that you're conscious with that. And Michael, I do know that at some schools, you can submit the actual report later on and then just put in the score in your application. So you don't want to speak on that? Yeah. So a lot of the schools I applied to actually had this option. I think um, one example is Johns Hopkins. And I think another one was actually Columbia, though I'm not sure about Columbia, where you can actually self-report your scores on the Common App. And if you get in, you have to send an official copy to only that one school um, that you matriculated into so that they can confirm your score. And so this opens up the front to kids lying about their score, but you shouldn't do that. Yeah, don't. Um, if not, if only for self-interest, because once you send in the official score report and your scores aren't the same, there's going to be a little bit of an issue. And colleges can rescind their acceptance offers. So just because Definitely. you're in a school, uh, do not think that you cannot be then rejected. Definitely. Definitely. And that goes for many things, you know, online presence, um, lying on any reports. I know uh, teachers have told us stories where kids have gotten so bad at the end of senior year that although the teacher wrote them a recommendation, they actually wrote to the school and had them rescind the college offer uh, just because the the kid got so bad in class. So Wait, just, are you serious? Yeah, this actually happened. <laughs> That's a really uh, yeah. mean teacher. No, he's he's a nice guy. You've met him before. Okay. <laughs> I don't like him anymore. That's, I mean. Thumbs down. Quick question. Can schools? Wait, tell me who it is. Tell me who it is. I'll cut it out. Uh, oh, nice guy, down. but like he said this, the, he said the kid was like really, really bad. And like it was in every class. Damn. So, mm, yeah. Mm, I'll cut that out. Yeah. So now that you have a better idea whether you should submit your test scores or not and which tests you can submit, um, then the question becomes when you submit it, because there's two options. You can submit it at the time of the test. When on both the ACT and the SAT, you can send the score to four different schools, or you can send it after you get your test results back at the time of your application. So which one is better? What do you guys think? Personally, I don't see the point in sending uh, a test score ahead of time because you you got to understand when you're doing this, um, you get to choose these schools before you take the test. And this also works with AP scores as well. The, the point where I see this being applicable is if you are a graduating senior and you're taking AP tests because you will already know which school you're enrolling in by then. So it's better to just send them all your scores because they're free instead of you having to pay money to send them later. But for example, let's say you're a junior and you're taking the SAT and they tell you that you can send it to four schools. And if you don't do that ahead of time, you can still do it uh, right before the test. They have a section in the uh, protocol for that. So Personally, I don't think that you should be sending your SAT score to a school, um, especially a school you're trying to impress. So let's say you want to send your SAT score to Harvard. I don't think personally that they will be impressed by that, and I don't know if they'll see it at all. So I don't think that you should 
send your score, especially because you don't know what you're going to get. So I, I just don't see the point in that unless you're a graduating senior and you're taking tests. In fact, many schools will not open a file on you just because you sent in a test. They'll actually tell the college board to hold off until your application comes in or until your senior year rolls in. But one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, these tests are not random. If you've generally been getting a 1300 on your SAT, you shouldn't expect to get a 1600, but you also shouldn't expect to get a 300, you know? So you generally know the range. Especially because that's not possible. You know, I understand it's possible for you to like bomb it and get a 200 or whatever. Yeah. You like had a bad night or whatever. That'd be a very bad night. I mean, but like you can, you still know generally and you can, you might not want to send it to your reach schools, but why don't you just send it to the schools that are your safety schools, your target schools, the schools that you're pretty sure, if not a hundred percent sure you're going to get into and that you just need some score on file with them. And the reason why you should do this for this specific type of school is because additional score reports after the time of the test cost $12 for the SAT to send all tests on one score report. But for the ACT, it's $13 per test per report. So that means if you have a school that is non-score choice, wants all your scores, and you have three different tests for the ACT, you have to send three different reports, one for each test. So that stuff really adds up, particularly on the ACT side. So just keep an eye out for those hidden costs that are going to keep going up with these the number of tests that you take and the number of schools you apply to. Yeah, but I do like your point about sending it to target schools or safety schools, uh, just because they and schools like that would be more likely to open up a file on you or keep your score. And you might be able to have an admission officer remember your name. I don't know. Um, you might get lucky there. So it's not a bad idea. Or at the very least, they might send you offers for scholarships that might make you think a little bit differently about your college application process. Okay, wait. So also, there's one thing that's like the ACT and SAT, you can like cancel your score like at like right after you finish the test or four days later, right? So does that go on your record or does it not? If you cancel it in time, it goes away completely. You don't get to see the test results and it doesn't stay on your record. It's gone. Okay, so you can do that if you're having a really, really bad day. Yeah, like if you knew you fell asleep or whatever in the first few seconds of the test, you should cancel. (laughs) Yeah, but just because uh, you think you did not as well as you would in practice, I would say to hold off on the test, especially because so many schools are uh, score choice. Uh, A lot of people will come out of the test thinking that they did poorly and then find out later that they did just fine or better than what they thought they got. So it's natural for students to be worried about their score right when they get out of the test. But give it a couple days just so as they will advise you during the test and kind of think about it because they do give you a, I think it's a one week period to decide to cancel it. So don't try to cancel it right away unless you really did mess up. Okay, so we've talked about the ACT and SAT, their differences, um, how you should submit them, when you should submit them. But now let's talk about the strategies for each test, which Michael, since you've taken both of them already, you probably know this best. Biggest top line piece of advice that I could give to anybody taking these tests and that I give to my students is to just, just chillax. These tests are not that hard. You don't need to think that hard on them. You definitely shouldn't overthink on these questions. These are questions that are designed to be finished in about a minute, a minute and 15 seconds. And if you're spending more than that, 
on a question. That means you're overthinking. There are specific things you can do for each type of question, for each type of test, for each type of passage on the reading section, but for all questions, just stay calm. It's going to be okay. Promise. Yep. And before we dive into the specific sections, I just want to add that I think one of the best preparation strategies, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to do well on this section or how to improve your score here or there. I think the best way to improve is to just practice. Um, so these tests are made very similarly. So for example, the math questions, although you're not going to see the same question on a later test from one of your practice tests, there will be a similar question. Um, there's only so many questions that they can make that are different from the other ones. So a lot of these same concepts in the question or in the reading, you know, trying to find uh, something in a passage, it's going to be the same style. So if you take many, many tests, you're going to learn the style of the uh, questions, and that's going to help you when answering them on the real test because you're going to be able to identify what type of question it's asking. Um, but you also need to make sure you're focused and make sure they're not trying to trick you as well. So for the reading section on both the SAT and the ACT and for the science section on the ACT, the number one thing to always remember is that the answers to the questions are always going to be in the passage. The more explicit the answer is, the more explicitly related to the text it is, the better that answer is. And so oftentimes you'll find that the correct answer has words that are literally stolen from the passage, that are synonyms of the passage, um, that look the same in structure as the passage. There are two things to always look out for. The right answer will always have one, the same main idea as the passage, and two, the same tone as the passage. If the passage is super harsh, super angry, your answer choice is also going to be super harsh and super angry. If your passage is about potato plants in the 1970s, your answers are also going to be about potato plants in the 1970s. Not about corn, not about <laughs> agriculture in 2000, yep. but specifically about potato plants in the 1970s. Be as tied to the text as possible because the text is where the answers are. So I know for reading, there are many different strategies. Do you think it's better to try to find the, the one correct answer or do you think it's easier to eliminate the wrong answers or do you think that's just a personal decision that's different for each tester? I think all of these things are personal decisions, but I think it's more likely than not that it's easier to eliminate because there are going to be some answers that are just clearly wrong. Like for example, if the text was about potato plants in the 1970s, and one of the answers was about Ronald Reagan invading Cuba, then, you know, it's pretty clear which answer is wrong. And so it might be better to, instead instead of finding the right answer in a haystack of other answers, to look at the wrong answers and eliminate from there. What about the whole thing where you read the entire passage, then you do the questions? Or you read the question first and then go back. Which one do you think is better? I think that honestly depends on how fast you are of a reader. Um, I'm a pretty fast reader, so I always just read the passage first. And if you're even a medium speed reader, I would suggest at least skimming the passage first. You don't need to know all the details. You really don't. Um, but what you do need to know... Um, and what you should probably annotate is the main idea or the one to two paraf word paraphrase of every single paragraph. So just after you skim that paragraph, write one, the one to two words that come to mind. It should be like a five second thing. You should not spend 10 minutes <laughs> thinking about the main idea of that paragraph. Whatever comes to mind, just write it down. Because when you get to the, to the questions 
and you need to look back at the passage. Instead of having to read the entire paragraph, you can look to the side and notice that your annotation says, hurt economy. So you kind of get a sense of what that paragraph and what the passage is saying. Um, so I would recommend doing, at least skimming the passage first and doing a really concise annotation strategy. So those are our strategies for the reading and science portions of these tests. Um, but what about the math section? Because I know you guys both got 800s already on your math section. So how did you guys do it? Uh, so personally, I've always been better at the math and reading. And in all of my practice ones and the PSATs before, I was better at the math section. Personally, I think the math section, especially on the SAT, is easier than the reading in general. But for me, a lot of the math questions are pretty similar to ones that have been previously administered. The test doesn't really change that much in the math section. So you're always going to have questions, for example, like solving linear equations or, or solving systems of linear equations or a lot of distributing questions. So I think that if you learn how to do these problems and, and also on the calculator section, learn how to use your calculator to answer these, um, there's a lot of things that you can just graph easily or plug in instead of having to do the math by hand. And then I also think that these questions are made to be simple, just like Michael said before. So there's always an easier way to do it. Um, I know that the given answer explanations on practice tests can sometimes be a little hard, but there's always an easier way to do it if you're taking too long to solve it. Um, so instead of doing it, writing it all the way out, there there's always a way to either use an equation or for example distribute or you can combine like terms. So there should be an easier way to answer the question. Oh yeah, and also building off of that, if you think you're spending too much time on the questions, maybe sometimes you just need to guess and check, like, since it's multiple choice questions, they'll already give you some answer choices. So if you can eliminate two, and then you're left with two, you might as well just plug it in if you're solving a system of equations. Sometimes you don't have to do the really complicated math way with a lot of step-by-step -step things. Sometimes you can just plug it in and you might get your answer. Yeah, and then sometimes if you're completely stuck on a problem, it might be easier to look at the answer choices and kind of work backwards from there. So for example, some problems... Um, it'll be like a complex number problem. And the only difference in the answers will be the way you add or subtract the numbers. So if you see that the only difference in the answers is adding or subtracting, then you might want to pay special attention to that in the question because that's where they're trying to trick you with the answer choices. And, that's, and that is what is going to lead you to the correct answer. And so if you're really stuck on a type of problem, I want to give you guys kind of some rules of thumb. So in the math section on an algebra problem when in doubt, write an equation, distribute out terms, combine like terms, and just go from there. Because these are just standard starting points that will hopefully get you in the right direction. And for geometry, whenever you're confused about something, draw a picture and then annotate it. If it says that side AB is 5, write a 5 next to that side. And it'll let you visualize the problem and hopefully have a starting point. And it might not get you to the right answer, but it'll get you close and hopefully close enough to at least guess the right answer. And with geometry, sometimes you might need an equation. And there is a list of equations um, at the front of the section for math that might be able for to help you. For the SAT. You. Yes, for the SAT. It is obviously better to learn these equations ahead of time and to study how to use them. But if you get stuck, uh, maybe one of those equations can help you solve the problem. And then also, you got to make sure you don't spend too much time on one problem. Because all these questions are weighted equally, so you don't want to spend too much time on a really hard problem and then not have enough time to do the easy ones that you know you will get right. So if you spend like more than one minute or something on it, maybe just mark it, do the ones you already know, and then come back to it if you have time. 
because you the worst thing is to get stuck on one problem and not have enough time to finish the test. And uh, fun fact, whenever the test proctor says you can have no stray marks at all on your test document or else all your answers will be invalidated and you'll be the only kid of the nation to get a zero on the SAT, <laughs> that is wrong. You can have stray marks. And in fact, I recommend that my students have stray marks. If you don't know the answer to a question, you want to skip it or guess on it, put a little, small, very light dot next to the question on your answer document so that when you go back, instead of having to flip through your test document and try to find something, you can look at your answer document with all the numbers next to each other and look for the ones with little dots next to each other. So feel free to guess, move on, and then if you have time, come back at the end. Just have a way of getting back to those questions that you flagged. And finally, for the essays, the strategies for each one are a bit different because they're different types of essays. But the big picture strategy for both of them is to start with a plan to hit all the points in the rubric for those tests. Look at the rubric for the essays beforehand and go from there. So for the SAT, it's a rhetorical analysis one. And so there are three sections, um, one about mechanics, standard grammar, two about whether you understand the passage, and three about whether you can analyze the passage. Your reading comprehension and your mechanics are probably going to be fine. The issue is going to be the analysis section. So before the test, make sure you remember that. Get some get some phrases in your head that will prompt you to write in an analytical way. Always try to use the word because. Always use try to use the sentence frames. The reason why the author did blank. The reason why the author put in a metaphor is because blah, 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 blah. So that it shows that you understand why the author is doing something, not just repeating what the author did. For the ACT, because it's a persuasive essay, I think it's a lot more comfortable for us because we argue every day. The strategy for that one, I think, is to just, again, look at the rubric and see what points you need to hit you need to be able to write a coherent essay with good development and organization. So make sure you have paragraphs and make sure that each part of your argument is in a new paragraph. The other thing to remember is that the ACT needs a counter-argument. So always have a counter-argument in its own paragraph. And then lastly, on these essays, a lot of students will get caught up on the essay. And you have to remember, a lot of schools don't even ask for the essay uh, because it is optional. But even the schools that do require you take the essay, it's not going to be weighted as heavily as the actual sections of the test and your actual score. So a lot of people get stuck with a score of sixes across the board, so a six in each of the three sections. And that is not a bad score. That is a good score, I do believe, and from what uh, the research will show, that is a good score. Uh, there are some students who get you know, full eights, and personally, I don't know how they do it, but... <laughs> I guess they're fantastic essay writers, but I think a score of all sixes across the board is a good benchmark to aim for, for an application to any school. And then the last thing I want to talk about about testing is that if you get a low or disappointing score and you take it again and you still have a kind of disappointing store, score, don't worry too much because this is only one part of the application. And if you happen to be a bad test taker and you can make up for it in other ways, um, then you're going to be fine. And if you're a bad test taker, but your grades and GPA are amazing, then you are still in the game. So don't worry so much about this one section of the test that you freak out completely, or you make testing your life because neither of those things are good for you as a person or good for you as a college applicant. Mm -hmm. Yep, wrap it up. So that was our episode about testing the SAT, 
the ACT, some strategies of how to take it, and some information about should you send the scores and how to prepare for them. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you want to support us, please use the audible.com link in the first few seconds of the podcast. That's audibletrial.com slash AUPod. That's a completely free trial for you, and it helps support us at the podcast. We also have a Patreon link at patreon.com slash admissions uncovered that you can use to donate just one or two dollars per podcast because every little bit helps us. If you like our podcast and want to follow us, go to your social media platform of choice and find us because we have a platform there and subscribe to keep listening. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. We're recording. Everybody good? Yep. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Everybody good? Yep. Yep.